This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Italian American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, and travel. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri. And we are back today with part two of our two-part interview with Gay Talese. Dolores, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Anthony. You want to know why? Why? Because we are receiving so much terrific feedback from all of you, from all of our listeners. It's coming in in letters, via email, on social media, and we're getting iTunes reviews. All of this, Paisani, makes us very, very happy. So please keep it coming. Like we've said before and like we're going to keep saying, it gives us the fuel to keep doing this work. And this this is a lot of work putting together the podcast, so we appreciate it please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the podcast there if you haven't already. And please visit italianamericanpodcast.com to connect with us via email, and you'll learn when all of our episodes are published. All right. Also, I want to mention that we do write blog articles typically on our off episode weeks. And the latest post was one that I wrote called Five Ways Italian Americans Can Learn About Their Ancestors, which is something we really want to inspire you to do through this podcast. So I'd ask you to not only read it, but also to add your own strategies that you've used to learn about your ancestors by commenting on the bottom of the post. Several of our listeners and readers have already done that, and we appreciate that. So with that, let's jump into part two of the interview here, which will also be followed up with an interview of Lucia Grillo who we interview in our Italian-American story segment today. Lucia hosts Italic's TV show that Dolores and I were recently on. She's also an actress, and you'll hear about some very interesting challenges that she had with her Italian-American identity at the end of the show. So before we jump in, let me offer a word from our sponsor, the National Italian-American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian-American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian-American podcast. At NEF, we see ourselves as the leaders of the Italian-American community, and we work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, our work provides young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, Visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. This is Gabrielle Maletti, Director of Programs for the National Italian American Foundation, and here is your Italian American Community News. The Italian government is planning to double child benefit payments in an attempt to combat the country's falling birth rates. 
According to stats, there were only 488,000 babies born in Italy in 2015, a fall of 5% from 2014. Italy's health minister, Beatrice Lorenzine, has declared that the monthly benefit for lower-income families should be doubled from 80 euros to 160 euros. And leave it up to the Napoletani for making the Guinness Book of World Records on May 18th for the longest pizza ever. Coming in at 185,388 meters, it only took them 6 hours and 11 minutes to make, 250 pizzaioli from around the world, 2,000 kilos of flour, 1,600 kilos of tomatoes, 2,000 kilos of fior di latte, 200 liters of olive oil, and 300 kilos of basil. Bravissimi ragazzi! Did you miss out on the fun at our New York gala? No worries. Join us on October 15th for our 41st anniversary gala in Washington, D.C. Advanced registration is now available for specially priced tickets until July 1st. NIAF and iItaly have partnered to offer two internship opportunities for recent Italian-American graduates interested in building the basis for a career in media while furthering their Italian language skills through full language immersion. The part-time internship will take place at the iItaly headquarters in New York City. Candidates must be recent Italian-American graduates who are members of the foundation. The application is due on June 30th. For more information on all NEF news, visit www.nef.org. All right, now let me introduce our guest for today. Gay Talese is a best-selling author who has written 11 books. He was a reporter for the New York Times from 1956 to 1965. And since then, he's written for the Times, Esquire, The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, and other national publications. His groundbreaking article, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, was named the best story Esquire ever published. And he was credited by Tom Wolfe with the creation of an inventum form of nonfiction writing called The New Journalism. His most recent book, A Writer's Life, was published by Knopf in 2006 and reissued in trade paperback by the Random House Publishing Group in July of 2007. A collection of his sports writing, The Silent Season of a Hero, was published by Walker & Company in September of 2010. Dolores, why don't you take us into this interview with a quote from Mr. Talese? Yeah, so we pulled this quote from actually a video from an event where the terrific PBS series, uh, The Italian Americans, was being introduced. And, and Gay Talese was um, part of the panel, along with one of our other guests, Maria Larino. And I like this quote because in our Part one of our episode, and of course, if you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to it. Gay Talese talks about his childhood and growing up in World War II era in America as an Italian and how that was such a struggle. So I think this quote really harkens back to that time and how far we've come. So he's speaking of his childhood and he says, I hope to think I'm probably the last of the Italian-American experience who's very familiar with the term Dago and WAP because it was foisted upon me. I am a living memory of the dark ages of American-Italian experience. So how did your family, if you don't mind me asking, feel about you being a writer? Well, I... I think they were relieved that I didn't try to do what my father did, which is make suits. He was a tailor, uh, beautiful tailor, yeah, but he didn't make any money. Mm. I mean, he made some money, but he was like a good writer. There was a literary writer didn't be, have, have a bestseller. Right. And also, I was the first person in my family to go to college. 
Now, that's true of all, nearly all of my generation. People born in the 30s, came of age in the 40s, went out to college in the 1950s. We were usually the first. And, and you know, it was good. When I was in journalism, my first job, as I mentioned, was my only job within journalism was the New York Times. But the people who were my age group, who were Jewish, who were Irish, who were African-American, we also had in common that we were probably the first of our generation that went to college. Our families were the laboring class or the tradesman class, like my father was Italian. I was a tailor, a tradesman. But what was good about that, our journalism, as we practiced it in the 1950s and 60s, was one of people who were born on the wrong side of the tracks, who were who were outside looking in, who were allied in a sense of skepticism because we had so lack of respect for committed power, organized power, which is what government is, that we would look look with a certain sense of dispassion or a certain sense of more than curiosity with a certain sense of skepticism of government and government power. And we we became good journalists. I mean, like Carl Bernstein, who with Woodward Bernstein formed this great team that finally led to the dismantling of, of President Nixon's uh, administration. Well, you know, Carl Bernstein is, is son of a, of a left-wing Jewish family, very, you might call them communists. I think Carl does think of them as all but communists, that they weren't actually communists in America. But again, the outsider. Now, what are we, where is journalism today? Very, very different from what I, when I was a practicing journalist, what it was like then. Now, journalism, like most of America, are all well-educated. They're the children of college graduates, most of them. And not only did they go to college, they went to the best colleges. We went to the worst colleges. We went to the poor colleges. where you, But the elite education eluded us. I mean, Harvard had, a, until recent generations, had a quota against Jews. Now that you know, half of the people at Harvard are Jewish. But I'm saying that earlier in my time, that wasn't true. But the people today, Jewish people, Italian people, even Irish, they all go to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, I mean, not in any great numbers, but I mean, at least the Italians are not going in great numbers. I can tell you that. You'll find them in Fordham and St. John's and Brooklyn College. You'll find them comparable places, universities in in the states, but but not the elite, not the really elite. But the most journalists today are no different than the people in power, the people that are your Secretary of State, the people who are running the Pentagon, people that are running the presidency, the people who are running the banks, the CEOs, the, the members of social clubs, the people who are the establishment today. Well, the journalist is, is in the establishment. That's why the journalism is so bad today, because it, they're so locked into the powerful force that runs the country, either on Wall Street or in politics, national politics, local politics. They are, they are right there going to the same clubs, mm. having, having attended the same universities. Their children belong to the same swimming clubs, the same golf clubs, same tennis court club. I do feel that there was very much a vibrancy, of course, in your generation's writing, the journalism, the new journalism you're famous for, of course. But even in many of the other artists and other fields that you've already mentioned, Coppola, Scorsese, Puzzo, and I, I wonder sometimes if that is because of the tension you know, tension's what tends to make a great story, right? And I wonder if that being lost as the generations uh, assimilate into the American culture, I wonder if that's part of where that magic and that vibrancy gets lost. Well, 
I, I didn't, or I hope I didn't uh, portray the Italian American experience in in the United States as a minor, somewhat lower than high class level of endeavor because the Italians, it's just there's a quality about being Italian American that is unique. And sometimes we celebrate it and sometimes we lament that it isn't more than what we wish it were. I am, because I'm from the printed media, I'm not a person that dwells in the internet as a person. I don't, I dwell on a, on a page. I, I put words on paper. I have a pen or a pencil and I write. And if I'm lucky enough, it gets published by a publisher of a magazine or a book publisher or a newspaper publisher. I never owned a cell phone. I mean, that's that's something I'm I'm not going to win the Nobel Peace Prize for that. But I I don't want to carry a stupid cell phone. I don't want to walk down the street looking at the, at the ground as I'm picking my little thumbs across something, or using a smartphone for for everything but thinking for me. And I want to be unconnected to the technology. I want to I want to be there myself. As a journalist, I always believe you have to show up. You have to physically show up. You can't Google your way through life. You can't sit in your kitchen with a laptop on your kitchen table, communicating within the, within the parameters of a small screen. I think you have to get out there, get off your ass, and experience things that you didn't know were there. With technology, you punch a key and you get the answer to the question you have. You know, so it could be Googling some, who was the vice president under the Garfield administration. Well, that's good. You can find out in two seconds. But it'd be better if you went through some old history books and were flipping through the pages, because then you find things you didn't know were there. In other words, you're not so, well, people, people today are, are goal-oriented people. They're linear. They, they, they want to go from here to there as quickly as they can with the least amount of energy and effort. They want, and they get it. You can just go, you know, you just push a button and, and you get what you want and you don't even have to leave your house. Well, is that good? No, it's let me wind up like I told you that the Italians in the period before there was automobiles, the Italians would use a mule and, and they didn't get very far and they were insular and they were very lost in their way of pursuing their lives because they didn't know very much what was on the other side of the mountain because they'd never been on the other side of the mountain. But today, we really have to go to the other side of the mountain. We have to show up to, we can't just do it by Googling the other side of the mountain. We have to go and look, and we discover things that we didn't know were there. That's what I, the word serendipity, which is a meaningful word in my life, because it's where you go and you discover things by chance. You don't discover things. In the Internet, you don't discover anything by chance. You discover what you want to discover, and you're communicating with like-minded people. You're dealing with an educated class, educated in the formal sense. To, to, to be able to have the this, this skill, the educated training of, of exploring the internet you have, you have in common with other educated people but a lot of the people that are in life today that affect our lives or that we should understand better are people that are not so similarly educated in the formal sense whose education is very at variance with our own but still they're people and they represent something obviously the journalist in you is still very lively you can tell very lively and frustrated, yes. as you can tell from my conversation with you, that I'm uh, uh, ranting. I'm an old 85-year-old, 84-year-old, uh, just a really ranting, uh, old, an old codger. It's great to listen to. I do want to talk a little bit about, about your work as well. You are well-known. Some of your, let's say, best-known uh, journalistic pieces 
cover some very prominent Italian-Americans. Joe DiMaggio, Frank Sinatra, you wrote an entire book, Honor Thy Father, right, about mobsters. Were those just... And I wrote about non-mobsters, too. I wrote a book that's most my most Italian-American book. My most is called Unto the Sun. Right. That is the real history of the immigration as my family experienced it on my mother's side as well as my father's side. That's a whole, that could be your story or anybody's story. It just happened to be mine. mine. But, but I also have written as an Italian American about non-Italian American subjects. I'm not a specialist. I mean, I wrote the whole history of the New York Times, which is Jewish owned. I wrote the history of, 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 of a bridge, uh, the Verrazzano Bridge uh, from the construction workers who were Indian and, and Irish. And, and I wrote a book about the life of a writer called a Writer's Life. It was published. I'm writing a book. I have a book coming out this next um, July about secrecy. I write about this. I was talking to you mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. how awful it is to have your privacy invaded. Well, I have a whole book coming out on that. Uh-huh. So I'm writing about a lot of different subjects because I am curious about a lot of different subjects. And I explore whatever it is I'm doing on hand. I show up. I don't I don't use the phone for interviews. I don't. I, I just get off. I get on an airplane, or I get in a car, or I get on my feet, and walk from one side of the city to the other to see what I want to see firsthand. I don't get it from secondary sources. And also, what I write, I don't. I don't allow people to not use their names. I always demand that the people that I'm writing about allow me to use their real names, so that my reader knows where this information is coming from. I hate this idea of sources, unnamed sources. That's just bullshit because the reporters are mostly lazy. They say, oh, we must protect our sources. They don't have to protect their sources. They can they can make their sources so much a part of interest in publishing whatever the information is that they'll own up to it. They'll be prideful. In, I, mean, this doesn't, I mean, if there's any journalist listening now, they'll say, this guy's crazy. <laughs> But I'm not crazy. I know you can be do it. I wrote in a book called Thy Neighbor's Wife. I'm writing about adultery in America, and I got real names of real adulterers in there. And this book that I'm doing now on on secrecy, I have real names. I believe you can do that. That's that's the art of nonfiction. The art of nonfiction is to get and delve into private life, as Thy Neighbor's Wife did in this new book I'm referring to, but also get those people that you're writing about Real people, real names, real facts. You're making nothing up. It's not a work of the imagination. That's fiction. Fiction, people make things up. Phony names, phony situations, however real they may be and, and reflective of the truth as they may be. Nevertheless, it's fiction. What I do is nonfiction, which is reality writing. And I, re- I get to know the people so well, I can get the use of their name because they trust me. And they trust me and they'll take the consequences too. And so we become partners. I, my kind of writing relies on such confidence with the people I'm writing about and, and belief in both of us and telling something close to the truth of other people's lives that they own up to it. They allow the use of their name and the reader knows where this information is coming from. There's nothing secret about it. Well, that's what I do. Well, I'm wondering about the, the pieces that you did pursue that were based on Italian-Americans. Did, were they just chosen because they were compelling topics, or did you feel when you were working on those things that that connection between your heritage and the subject matters? Oh, well, there's always that. Yeah. I mean, for example, because I, I admire and know Tony Bennett, and I actually wrote a piece in The New Yorker some years ago about him when he was recording an album with Lady Gaga. And because of him, uh, he, he introduced me to Lady Gaga. 
I went to a studio one time. I saw her with Tony Bennett recording a song. Ladies of Tramp was the song and this duets album this, that they produced about four, three or four years ago. So I met her and I met her mother and father. Very charming. They're Italian Americans. Right. People don't. Many people know she is Italian American. Maybe they don't don't know her her, her name. But it's an Italian name, and her parents are prideful Italian Americans, both of them. Both mother and father come from Italian heritage, as I say. And I talked to Lady Gaga, this, this enormously colorful character, this tremendously talented singer and performer, with all those gowns and wigs and shoes and all the pyrotechnics of her, mm-hmm. of her costume and wardrobe. She's basically a simple Italian American girl from a neighborhood. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. So I can talk to her, not as Lady Gaga, this international star of mystery and, and, and mirth and myth, but rather just as an ordinary neighborhood girl. Right. You know, looking out the window, Anthony, right. dinner's ready. You know. Yeah, we'd love to have her on the show if, if you're listening, Lady Gaga. <laughs> we'd yeah, love to talk to her in the same way. Yeah, you can. She has a lot of free time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand. So what you're saying is there's that connection on that level. Yeah, I, that's right. I mm-hmm. have it. Tony Bennett, of course, he's of my time. But even young people, I meet sometimes uh, 26-year-old people. Maybe they're students of journalism class, and maybe they're beginning their career. And I run into them because I interview somebody that knows them, and I meet them. And I, I feel I'm talking, of course, to their grandparents at first, mm. but then I can see the influence of their grandparents and something of their own awareness of their past. Right. And so it's very uh, edifying and it's very actually thrilling. Right. You know, Unto the Sons, this, you, you mentioned that book, which is, um, do you describe it as a memoir or a nonfiction book? Start there. Well, it is a memoir. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it has to be wrong. It could be it's it's nonfiction and it's reliably reported. It is so detailed. You see, reporting takes the, the hardest part of writing nonfiction is in the beginning the time it takes to do research, particularly if it's firsthand. Meaning, yes, you get information out of books. Everybody goes to a history book and gets some sense of history from maybe several history books because there's always a difference according to the author of interpretation of whatever aspect of history is being regarded. But then you have to go out and do your own history firsthand. You have to go out and, you know, start breaking stones yourself and you see what is the substance, what is what really does matter. And um, that takes time. It takes patience, takes perseverance. After you've done all that stuff, then you have to organize it. I mean, you've got this massive amount of material. Then you have to ask yourself, you take inventory. What do I have? What does it mean? And thirdly, when you decide what you have and what does it mean, then you have to organize it. How do we begin? If you're a storyteller, and I aspire always to be a storyteller, you want to begin with a scene as you would a movie. If you walk into a movie house and you sit down and the film begins, there's an opening scene. A guy gets in a car and he's driving through the streets of, of, of a city or driving through the desert in Mojave. I mean, wherever it is, there's a scene. A woman wakes up in the morning and she looks at her clock and then she wakes her baby up and they go to school together. A scene. My my work, Frank Sinatra's a cold, begins with a scene. What's the scene? Frank Sinatra's drinking with two blondes at a bar. It's like 11 o'clock at night and someone uh, in this bar plays a song called The Wee Small Hours in the Morning. That's a scene. Uh, Joe DiMaggio, you mentioned that. It's a scene of a guy in a restaurant. His playing days is a baseball star long over Marlon Monroe's dead and he's all by himself 
in a family-owned restaurant overlooking Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. He's just, he just smoking and looking out the window upon the fisherman. His father was once a fisherman, Jamaggio, I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. At the scene, in the Honor Thy Father, there's a scene of a doorman on Lower Park Avenue in Manhattan. And he sees two people shoving another guy into a car. And he doesn't know who they are, this doorman. He just sees these men kidnapping some other one. And they drive off. And the doorman saw all this. But later on, when the cops come over, he said he didn't see anything because he didn't want to be involved. Well, the person that was being kidnapped was the, a, a mafia guy. That's the way Honor Thy Father begins. It's about the Bonanno crime family. And it's about a doorman that didn't want to see things. And I've written about doorman. And doormen are out there all day long, and they see all these things. They, they know the people in the, who are in the building who are, own apartments in this apartment house, for example. The doorman's outside. And he knows that the people, the men are coming in there with people, not their wives. He, he, so he knows about adultery. He knows what he sees in the street. He might see an auto accident, one car hitting another, and somebody, a bystander, gets killed. The doorman may testify, but he doesn't want to be involved because then he has to be a witness and he has to testify. You know, people don't want to be involved. They want to see what they want to see, but they selectively see what they want to see, selectively. So this is storytelling I'm talking about. Well, I'd like to say to our listeners, I mean, if you haven't for some reason read Unto the Suns, it's it's really a book you need to pick up. It is a sprawling epic, I think is a is a proper word for this book, about Mr. Talese's family, but it is really the story of Italian-American history. I mean, you get into such detail about your ancestral villages. It's amazing. It's very, very impressive, and it's really a classic work, and, and every Italian-American should have it on their bookshelf, to say the least. Oh, darling, you're so, you're so kind, and I'm so grateful for your interest and also encouragement. Well, you know... Just quickly, and we can wrap up here. You've been so generous with your time, but I okay. I did want to know that after you wrote a book like Unto the Suns, it's so personal that I wonder if you felt that you had kind of resolved something within you. Yes. Yes, when I first went to do that, I didn't really know much about my grandparents. I only knew my father, and and because he was the only immigrant, as I say, his brothers who got caught in the war, and fighting in the Italian army in World War II, I didn't know them. And moreover, I never, I never spoke Italian. I never learned, as I told you, my parents wanted to assimilate and spoke English because they didn't want to be <clears throat> marked as as enemy aliens and didn't want to be marked as non non American, non American. They wanted to be American. So I learned English, or I mean, I, I it's the only language I ever spoke. I thought that I had any interest in speaking Italian when being Italian in the 1940s was being fascist or, 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 or mafia or both, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was guarded and trained in a guarded house. You better be American. Don't risk being a foreigner. Being a foreigner is to be ostracized and to be considered uh, a disloyal Amer- American, if not a terrorist, which is the case today with the children of Islamic upbringing. So when I started getting back to your question, going to Italy, which I started in 1982, that book wasn't published until 1990, Unto the Suns. But I started in 1982, and I finally hired an interpreter so I could speak, so I could communicate with people who didn't speak English, which is all my, which which means all the Talese people in Di Paolo, my mother's name was Di Paolo. 
I wanted to know who these people are. Mm. And I needed interpreters. But I went down and I lived for six months in Calabria. Oh, wow. And I, I was there. I wasn't living in Rome at the, some, you know, ambassador hotel, and right. five-star hotel, and trying to write about the Italians of Calabria. I went to Calabria. You have to show up, I said, so many times in your program already. Yeah. And I got little by little... I saw their stories emerge, and little by little, I got a pretty good picture, a big picture, of what it's like in these small towns, small villages, and I wrote about it, and I wrote about coming to America, too, and so the story of, of Cuomo and Sinatra and Scorsese and Nick Pelleggi, my cousin, uh, who, who married Nora Ephron, he's a screenwriter, and he wrote Goodfellas, and he wrote A Casino with, mm. with uh, Martin Scorsese directing those films. Uh, all, all their stories of these people and many more people like them are reflected in Unto the Sun. It's not just a, my, it's a whole movement. I have many characters in this book. So thank you for, for mentioning it because it's probably the best book I've ever done. Mm, wow. Well, I know for myself, you know, as a, as a young creative type growing up, my parents immigrated to, um, New York when when after they had gotten married and they're from the regions just below Naples, so you know my my one brother's a banker, my other brother's a tech guy, my sister's you know a housewife, and then there's the creative daughter who wants to write books and it's a it's a different way you know than than what they kind of want for you and I was always looking for people I could look up to and kind of find examples not so much to emulate but to guide me and you were certainly one of those people, because you you didn't shy away from Italian-American topics. You weren't ashamed of being Italian-American. It wasn't like you were going to sacrifice that in order to be a great American writer. You simply did both. That's right. Well, I, I, I it's certainly gratifying at my advanced age to hear a young person such as yourself give me that, that compliment that you just gave me. So that's, that isn't, something we get with frequency it's 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 sometimes what you do is not acknowledged because what you do might be ahead of your time maybe after you're dead you're acknowledged it's so often the case you know especially with writers Mm -hmm. but um i've been fortunate to have as what i just heard you say some acknowledgement during my lifetime of the efforts that i made to do certain things and they resounded and and were appreciated by people like you Dolores so I I can say it's been a happy occasion being on your show for many reasons not the least getting the personal gratification of hearing you say what you just said so thank you so much of course well thank you I'm, I'm glad I shared it you certainly um you mean you made inroads and you made me feel like it was something that you know that I could do as well so thank you oh boy well all right so we're, <laughs> we're ending on a happy note of course I like that yeah so thank you Mr. Talese for being on our show it's been such a treat All right, you're welcome indeed. All right, this is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our relatives. Or you can record your own story, which we have some now, and we're going to be playing them in upcoming episodes. That's why we call this the Italian-American Story Segment. In this segment, we're going to be talking to Lucia Grillo, who I'll introduce momentarily to hear a little bit about her past as an Italian-American. But before we jump in, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this segment, Select Italy. Select Italy is the ultimate source for travel to Italy, 
and offers a wide array of superior Italian travel products and services, including customized itineraries, fascinating tours, romantic getaways, unique and fun culinary classes, yacht charters, transportation, hotel reservations, villa bookings, tickets for museums and musical events, and more. All right, so now we are here speaking with Lucia Grillo. Lucia is many things, but above all things, she's an actress, and we're going to talk to her about that. She began her theater studies at the age of 15, attending the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute in New York. She received her BFA in acting from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, where she also minored in cinema studies and Italian literature. Lucia acted in her first play at the age of six and has since worked in theater, cinema, and television. She founded her own production company, Kala. Lucia, help me out here. <laughs> Anthony, you should know this. <laughs> Calabrizella Films. Calabrizella Films. Calabrizella Films. And her directorial debut, the short film Appena Dupana. The Cost of Bread stars internationally acclaimed actor Vincent Chiavelli and premiered at AFI Fest in Hollywood. Welcome to the Italian American Podcast, Lucia. Thanks so much for having me. And it's great to, uh, let's say, hang virtually with you guys again. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So, Lucia, why don't we start off by kind of telling us where where your family came from in, in Italy? My parents are both from a small town called Francavilla Angitola in Calabria. Uh, in the province of what, what is now Vibo Valencia. Okay. And they both came here from there. So you're, I guess, first generation. Is that right? I'm first generation. My older sister was the first one to be born um, in this country of our family. Oh. So, yeah, my parents, my dad came here at 16. And um, my mom came here as his 15-year-old bride. Um, wow. Some years later, Yes. My parents are very, especially my mom, very forward thinking. And um, I, at a young age, I imposed a lot of non-traditional viewpoints and ways of being that they, you know, they were, let's say, forced to accept and they readily accepted when they knew that I was a serious girl. You know, a lot of, a lot of non-conformities, a lot of the opposite of what people usually consider Italian American. So, yeah. So for example, when I had declared that I was an atheist at age, I don't know, five, they said, well, you'll have your confirmation and then you can do whatever you want. (laughs) Things like that. When I, you know, when I declared that I was vegan or was a vegetarian at the time at age 12, they first thought I was going to die, so they would sneak meat in my food. But then when they knew I was serious, they they did their utmost to, you know, to figure out how to feed their child. <laughs> um, very left-wing politics. I, you know, I'm trying to be part of the movement to change the world. So, you know, to end all exploitation and oppression. You know, these things kind of, they don't really readily fall into the categories of you know, immigrant, a child of immigrants get mar- gets married <laughs> to a right. good man yeah. with a job and has kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. One of my questions for you was, was going to be, you know, how your family kind of takes, and, and I mean, at this point, they're probably fine with it, but I was wondering the, the creative, artistic, mm-hmm. acting, you know, I, I talk about on the show often as I, I grew up a free-spirited, creative girl in my old-fashioned Italian family, and 
I'm a writer and it was not really something that they were crazy about, you know, because they wanted you to, they wanted you to, to do things that were tangible, you know, like mm-hmm. be a lawyer or be a doctor or something like something like that, or be a news anchor on television, you mm-hmm. know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it was a struggle, but it seems like you had a completely different experience. That's Well, amazing. I'm very stubborn. I think one of my Calabrian traits in, mm-hmm. in the good way is that, right. you know, when I'm, when I find something that I believe in or that I know I need to make happen, I'm very focused, very determined. And especially, you know, looking around the world and, you know, seeing what needs to be done in order that we don't destroy it as humans, you know, a lot of things like that. But as far as, you know, my creative, that was encouraged from an early age. You know, my my mom, you know, sent us to dance lessons. She sent us to piano. I started playing the piano when I was five. Wow. My nonno was a carpenter, but he was also a clarinetist. And my other nonno, who was a farmer and a gardener here, I found out years later during the making of one of my documentaries that he was um, a trumpeter in, in the war, you know, so my and my parents are very creative. My dad's a chef mm-hmm. and my mom has this incredible Im- imagination. I couldn't have Im- imagined a better, a more creative childhood. So they were always encouraging when it came time to choose a career. It was, oh, my God, you're so smart. Why not doctor or lawyer? And I said, well, those are both too easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So they've been, you know, they've been encouraging ever since, you know, they, they sent me to the acting school that I wanted to go to. And they, they sent me to NYU when I, you know, I said, it's the best for majoring in acting. And they encouraged me at every step. It wasn't easy, right? Because they want the stability, the immigrants, you know, they know what it's like to not have food and to struggle to, you know, to have a better life for your kids if you have kids. So they want, they still do. They still want the stability. I mean, even though I'm here at Italic and I've been here for eight and a half years, they, they'll they always worry about stability and, you know, their child possibly starving. But um, they were always creative. I mean, my mom has also been a consultant, collaborator, and one of the lead actors in my first film. And she took them, she takes on all these roles eagerly and with gusto and she does them all really well so it's um they've been you know uh, with even through the grappling of you know will you survive (laughs) they've always been they've always been encouraging when they know that you know i mean business sounds like a beautiful family honestly yeah that's great So Lucia, you obviously, you're passionate about acting and you had been doing it for some time and then you decided to go into the production side and start your, your company. Tell us about how that happened. Basically, I was in LA, you know, I'd worked with Spike Lee a couple of times and, you know, friends were like, well, if you're getting this much work in New York, there's more in LA. So I was out in LA auditioning for some really incredible projects, Charlie's Angels, things like that, of that oh. caliber. But, um, you know, I need to create. I'm a creative person. So for me, it wasn't enough to just, you know, audition. I needed to, you know, make something. And um, I had started transcribing uh, interviews with my mom and my Zia, her sisters, because I was really interested in their in their lives and their experience. And I was transcribing them. And this one story came, you know, just kind of uh, stood out to me. 
amidst this of my mom, something that my mom, you know, had talked about of her childhood. And I just started, you know, writing it in screenplay format. And I decided I was going to go to Italy and, and make this movie. I had thought that I would direct, you know, maybe when I was like 50 after a long career in acting. And it just, the bug bit me. And the let's say the poison is still <laughs> is still wow. flowing through my veins, <laughs> or the vitamins we'll say. That's awesome. Was that was that um, screenplay the cost of bread or it was yes it was. it was. So I I read that you say making that film for you was the closest way of experiencing what your parents had lived as children. Mm-hmm. You know that caught my attention in particular because I I spent several years of my life working on a memoir about about my family and their stories. And one of the things that was so inexplicable yet compelling for me was I, it was like I needed to recreate their childhoods. Oh, wow. And I don't know why that is. I'm wondering if you have any, you know, comments on, on why that was for you and, and what it felt mm-hmm. like to almost to be able to live in that, you know? Yeah. Well, we, <laughs> my sisters and I used to joke, you know, we, we used to watch Little House on the Prairie <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, my mom. When my mom would tell us about her childhood, we'd be almost in disbelief because <laughs> right. to jump from that, you know, we're like, you basically Laura Ingalls, or like you grew up in medieval times. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. And it was just yeah. weird to jump from that. You know, I tease my dad now when he, you know, they've got that that car that the trunk opens when you push the button. I'm like, did you ever think when you were riding a donkey back in Francavilla, you know, on your way from the farm to the town, that someday you would have a car that you push a button and the trunk opens? It's so true. Yeah. <laughs> so I just felt like, you know, a, a few things. One, you know, I'm such a nonconformist. I don't want to say American, I'll just say human being, but, you know, punk rock, all this. I just felt so far removed from this, you know, really very rich, in a sense, background, you know, that my parents lived. And I just felt like, I think it's a number of things. One is that they have given their entire lives to their children and worked so hard that I just kind of want to, you know, appreciate it as fully as I can. And um, I'm getting emotional. I don't know if you can tell. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. <laughs> and, I'm, I'm um, listening to you. know, because I just, yeah. to honor that, I think like so often in our world, in our modern world, we don't appreciate so much. I mean, the people, you know, the people who are underpaid that pick our fruit so we could have it at a certain price, those people live lives, you know, similar, if not more difficult than what my parents went through. And I just feel like to honor humanity and the the ones who are forgotten or not considered, my own background is that close. Mm. You know, I was just that close mm. to not living that same kind of life. And being as privileged as I am, I really need to honor that, especially since you know, as the generations progress, we're going to know that reality and be further removed from it, from those roots more and more. That's beautiful. And that's why that's also one of the reasons that we started the podcast so that we could have these files that people can listen to as our relatives get older, right? And the next generation comes along, like, you know, my kids, their kids. We'll link to 
Lucia's website at calabrizellafilms.com on our show notes here so you can check out everything she's working on. So, Lucia, as we wrap this up here, let's end up with Italics, which is where we got the opportunity to meet. You've been there now. You're a producer there. You've been there for a while now, since 2007. Just curious as to how that experience has been for you. I know when we spoke in the studio, you told us, you know, that there was at times a little bit of a challenge with you as far as your Italian-American identity. And you kind of mentioned some things earlier on here in our segment here. Just wondering, like, how it's been this whole experience based on everything that you've kind of gone through. It's been amazing because I get to tell stories of Italian-Americans that we might not necessarily know about, you know, like... I have to say, I get really pissed off when I go to these huge events, you know, awards, galas, and every single person says, we're Italian-American, God, family, country. And I'm like, those are, well, aside from the family part, but I'm like, not all of us. And we have a great history of people that do not uphold country when it's not right to, or the... um you know, the the idea of having countries and borders, right? But we want to think about humanity or like those of us who don't believe in a God, things like that, you know, because because we think more scientifically, you know, things like that. And I'm like, there are these things that are upheld as being inherently Italian-American is not the experience of a lot, a lot of people I know, you know, and people, even people that I don't know. So being able to do italics, and yes, of course, covering that because it's part of the Italian-American experience, but also being able to show the rainbow of Italian-Americans. You know, for example, we've done a couple of episodes on LGBTQ Italian-Americans and, um, you know, things like that that not, are not necessarily thought of in the category that we get to show in italics to show the variety of what the diaspora represents. Wow. Well said. Yeah, no, it's, I think, Lucia, what's great about everything you're doing is it's just, there's so much expression between the acting, the producing, you know, the show, you know, what you're doing with your films. It gives you so many different avenues to like create things, which it sounds like is what you really love to do. And it's, we're really excited to get to talk to you here for a few minutes and hear about it. And we're, we're happy that you shared this with us. Thank you guys so much for, you know, including me in your wonderful podcast. I wish you guys the best, and it's just an honor to be here at the, these great beginnings that you guys are having. Oh, thank, thank you, Lucia. You. We appreciate it. And you can find Lucia or keep up with her through her website at calabrizellafilms.com, where her films are available there or on Amazon. Thanks again, Lucia. Thanks so much. All right, so I hope you enjoyed the second part of the interview with Gay Talese as well as our segment here with Lucia. I want to close out the episode by recognizing our sponsor again, then I'm going to kick it over to Dolores. She's actually going to read a nice note that we received from one of our listeners. So again, thanks again to Select Italy for supporting us. Everything you need for optimum travel to Italy is possible with Select Italy. Their helpful travel planners in Chicago, New York, and Shanghai are always ready to give the best advice on when and where to visit, while the Florence support staff is there to help should you need anything while you're actually in Italy. The company recently expanded its offerings and services to the Balkans with the launch of Select Croatia. Visit SelectItaly.com and SelectCroatia.com. All right, Dolores, what do you have for us? This is a great letter we got from Sandy R. And she writes, Hi, Dolores and Anthony. I'm also Italian-American, and I really enjoy listening to your podcasts. 
Today, I was listening to your podcast with the National Italian American Foundation, and everyone was talking about when they realized they were different from other people. I remember when I was around seven or eight, my neighborhood friend's grandmother came to visit her. I was shocked. Her grandmother drove. She was thin. She dressed very trendy. She wore heels, and she didn't speak broken English. When I was a child, I thought all old people spoke broken English. It was quite an eye-opener. Keep up the great work. Thank you for doing the podcasts. It's nice to know that there are others out there like my family. Thanks for writing, Sandy. And everyone, please, Amici, keep the letters coming. Yeah, that's great. And also just remember, if you go to ItalianAmericanPodcast.com, you can click on join and sign up for our newsletter. We send out emails as soon as we publish our episodes and when we write new articles so you can get them right away and keep on listening. All right, Dolores, where can our listeners connect with us? So you can find us on Instagram at Italian American. We're on Twitter at Ital American. That's I-T-A-L American. And we're on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Arrivederci. 